Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. It's the holiday season with a lot going on in the short north. More about that in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Tracy Townsend presents information on a number of topics, including the growing measles outbreak in central Ohio. There are now at least 50 cases. An effort to make it tough to put constitutional amendments up for a statewide vote. And a look at problems with out-of-state behavioral treatment facilities that are taking in troubled kids from Ohio. In the second half hour, I'll talk with someone in Cincinnati about that city's homeless population and how they're working to reduce it. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the head of the national group, SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Betsy Pandora, who is the executive director of the Short North Alliance. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks for talking to us. We uh, chat with you once in a while. Tell us what the Short North Alliance is. Oh, we're a nonprofit organization that helps to provide support and services to all in our Short North Arts District community. Of course, everybody here knows the, the Short North, knows what it is and where it is, but is what is the exact boundary? Is there like a, a detailed boundary on what you're talking about when you say the Short North? Well, you know, I think colloquially, you could anything from, you know, the river to the railroad, um, from King to Nationwide, is the short north. I think, you know, it, it depends on who you are and, and how you came into the community. But uh, very specifically, we provide services to the area from King Avenue to Nationwide um, Boulevard and one alley east or west of High Street. Okay. And uh, the holiday season is a busy time up that way. It is a very busy time. You know, we have a huge concentration of predominantly small businesses. Nearly 90% of our business community are small local businesses, many of them retailers, and uh, many of them just super dependent on foot traffic and, and energy and, um, and community to support their business. Um, so the holiday season every year is, I think, a key way for them to see success. And as we air this, uh, your holiday hop was yesterday. That's an annual event? That is an annual event. It's the largest gallery hop of the year, and um, that is just a celebrated tradition in Columbus. Um, But we have lots of activities and uh, initiatives taking place throughout the holiday season, specifically that help uh, with people supporting our small business community. Um, uh, All season long this year, we are doing our Short North Arts District Holiday Trail, where if you make a purchase at um, uh, up to five participating Short North businesses, you can receive a district dollars gift card, which is our universal gift card program for businesses in the Short North Arts District. Um, uh, Additionally, our businesses are doing 12 days of deals throughout December and um, uh, offering different incentives and packages and items on uh, corresponding days. All of that information is available on our website at shortnorth.org, and all of it is designed um, to help uh, members of the Columbus community um, really uh, dig in deep to supporting local businesses this holiday season. And I see that uh, next week is, uh, this coming weekend, is the all-dessert tour. What's that about? There are so many great events that take place all holiday season long in the Short North Arts District. And it's really become, I think, a center in our community where people come to celebrate. So um, uh, whether it's Columbus Food Adventures, which is, you know, one of the events that I think that you've picked up on that does um, really fun food tours of various establishments in the Short North, one of them being all dessert, which feels apt for the holiday season. Or it's groups like the Short North Stage who 
we're presenting White Christmas this year, um, which is, you know, Irving Berlin and a, a beloved musical that, that um, you know, probably needs no introduction. Um, uh, we see tons and tons of really special things taking place, be they performance or, or ways in which people can gather and celebrate. Talking with Betsy Pandora, Executive Director of the Short North Alliance, the numbers coming out from the U.S. Commerce Department about jobs and all that, it it still seems like the economy is doing quite well, despite the fact that media types like me are trying to kill it by talking about recession. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I don't want to... You uh, in this conversation, um, uh, because I don't know that I feel the most qualified as much as I would say, you know, our small business community probably continues to be challenged, like many nationally, in um, labor shortages and hiring concerns um, um, because it is such a hospitality uh, based industry. Um, uh, and, you know, that that continues to be of challenge. That said, I think we've heard from folks this year that they have they've really experienced a, a positive year. And um, I think it's a real corner turn from where we have been over the last two years due to pandemic impacts. I think people are coming out in larger numbers than um, we have seen in a long while um, to be together. And, um, and I think people really do care about supporting local businesses and the things that give them joy in their community. I would guess really one of the biggest concerns that small businesses have are, you know, if they're renting their place, that's... Yeah, that's got to be a big concern the way uh, property values are going up. You know, it's really variable, and and I would say that on the whole, members of our business community, um, you know, are in a fairly secure place there, and um, uh, you know, rent as a percentage of, of overall overhead truly is is pretty variable depending on the type of business that you are. Um, I would say some things that probably are impacting businesses more are um, uh, carryovers from the pandemic, whether that's the conversion and change of how people's purchasing behavior has occurred. So more people are making purchases online than ever before. And we've seen in our business community, retailers, uh, you know, really have to evolve with that. Um, And their business models, you know, are now uh, in, I would say, equal parts, um, helping people to make those purchases online and maybe pick up in store or or, um, through that walk up, you know, sort of experiential in the moment experience. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it is a really vibrant place in our city, and it continues to be, I think, a really strong place for small businesses to do business. We saw this year, um, uh, I think it's six different establishments that have been tenured businesses in the short north grow their space and move into different spaces within the community um, because they wanted to expand what it is that they're doing. Um, so it's it's really a great spot. Um, you may see some shifts and changes, but it's really more about how businesses have incubated and been able to grow and see success because of being here. You talked about the holiday hop being yesterday, and that's uh, just the, the holiday version of the gallery hop that goes on every month. How have those been doing this year? Really great. I think people, you know, are excited to to get back out and enjoy and experience um, art in our community. And, um, you know, it is really a part of our community's legacy and history to do that event on a monthly basis. And it continues to evolve with the community. There's uh, a lot of activity, too, going on, you know, in that area near Nationwide. You know, you've got the hotel expansion that has opened up now, and then you've got the big tower that's going up as uh, part of that North Market area. That's going to be huge when all that's done. Oh, the new hotel is just gorgeous, and it's, it's, we've really, you know, even started to see an uptick in visitors 
flowing through the area because of the added hotel rooms that have come in with it. Um, has a gorgeous uh, art collection within it as well. Many local artists and, and artists with experience and representation in the short north are found there. Um, and you know, certainly an additional hotel will be incorporated into the um, the expansion project for the North Market. And it's, that's just such a gem and a jewel in our city that you know it will all really shine when it's all completed. Talking with Betsy Pandora, she's the executive director of the Short North Alliance. Anything else you'd like to add about the holiday season up that way? Everything is available um, from our events calendar to um, our trail cards to um, incentives and and discounts for parking when you visit the Short North on our website at shortnorth.org. Truly just, you know, excited to see people coming out to celebrate during this holiday season and and, um, are just a really great way for our community to support local. Great. Uh, Betsy Pandora again with the Short North Alliance. Uh, Thanks for your time and happy holidays. Happy holidays, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Thank you for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Right now, the CDC is investigating a measles outbreak in our state. According to Columbus Public Health, the oldest patient, a six-year-old, was exempt from getting the MMR vaccine, which is part of the required vaccines to enroll in Ohio schools. 10TV's Lindsay Mills is taking a closer look at vaccine exemptions locally and across the state. They really do an investigation to try and understand where this outbreak started and who else might have been in those settings and at risk. The CDC sent two of its epidemiologists to central Ohio to help Columbus Public Health investigate a measles outbreak. According to the health department, the oldest infected is a six-year-old who was exempt from getting the MMR vaccine required to enroll in school. We've had the benefit of, of great coverage from these vaccines and haven't had to see these diseases. And right now we are starting to see um, less vaccination in some of these communities and and these diseases resurge. Of the Columbus area measles cases, Columbus Public Health says all the children are unvaccinated. According to the latest data from the CDC, 89.6 percent of Ohio kindergartners had the MMR vaccine in the 2020-2021 school year. The U.S. median for the same year, 93.7 percent. In Westerville, the school year marks the highest number in the last five years of total students who opted out of required immunizations for philosophical or religious reasons. That number, 413, accounts, though, for less than 3 percent of students. And in Reynoldsburg, according to a district communications director, the number of immunization objections for all required vaccines remains low, with less than 1 percent of students opting out the last two school years. Health officials in central Ohio Ohio and across the country urging parents to stay up to date on their child's vaccinations. This is just critically important. 
That's Lindsay Mills reporting. Exactly what will the epidemiologists from the CDC do while they're here? So they'll do a lot of family interviews and interviews um, of people. Where have they traveled? Where have they been? Who is uh, of these cases that have been um, in contact? Have they been in contact with one another? Have they been in similar settings? Um, did one leave a, a daycare setting, for example, before another came in? Could it have been circulating that way? So they really do an investigation to try and understand where this outbreak started and who else might have been in those settings and at risk. Columbus Public Health launched a website to track this measles outbreak, and you can find a link to it at 10tv.com slash featured links. There's also a big concern about winter time illnesses being on the rise in Ohio. RSV, influenza, and COVID-19 are among the top concerns. We also asked the CDC director about what you need to do this holiday season to keep your family healthy. So certainly what we always see during um, during the fall and winter season is a rise of respiratory viruses. We are seeing that now, not just with RSV, but also with an early influenza season, as well as the ongoing concern of COVID-19. So the most important thing that you can do is to do all those preventive measures. Most importantly, get vaccinated. If you're eligible for that bivalent vaccine, everybody over the age of five, go ahead and get that bivalent vaccine. Certainly everyone over the age of six months old is eligible eligible for that influenza vaccine. So go ahead and take those preventive measures by getting vaccinated. That protects you, that protects your loved ones, that protects everyone around you. Um, in the meantime, though, if you have those symptoms, go ahead and stay home. Or if you're around others who have symptoms, you want to try and avoid those with symptoms. You can always consider wearing a mask that prevents not only COVID-19, but also other respiratory infections, and then improving ventilation wherever you're going. In Columbus, city leaders are working on gun control legislation that they want drafted soon. The proposal would prevent ordinary citizens from buying large ammunition magazines containing more than 30 rounds. It would also require gun safety locks. There was a public meeting for comment on the proposal. The majority of the people spoke out in support of the change. This is what this situation demands. This is the response our residents deserve. Our city's comprehensive neighborhood safety strategy is just that. It's comprehensive. It's holistic. It encompasses prevention, intervention, and enforcement techniques. And it continues to grow and evolve with each passing year. So I applaud the city council for taking upon itself what the state legislature has been unwilling to address. I'm particularly grateful for your consideration of the prohibition on high-capacity magazines. Impact Community Action will soon have a 90% reduction in emergency rental assistance funding. The funding will take a dip next year from $60 million to $6 million. Anyone who has applied for rental assistance already will receive their funding, but come mid-December, the online portal will be suspended and 39 temporary employees will lose their jobs. The reality is our population is growing faster than our ability to build housing. Um, and um, we've seen rent increases, housing price increases, and increases across the board. And so there's some tough economic uh, times ahead. Impact hopes the state legislature will pass new funding during this lame duck session, which would be a new 
$36 million. Their swift reaction to a new resolution rolled out by Ohio Republicans to make it more challenging for citizens to amend the state constitution. The Ohio Constitution Protection Amendment, according to Secretary of State Frank LaRose, is aimed at preventing abuse by special interests and out-of-state activists. The new amendment would require petition-based amendments to pass with 60% of the vote instead of a simple majority. I also think that it's important that, uh, uh, you know, that we continue to encourage that kind of consensus building. And I think that uh, if you don't think that your idea is broadly popular enough to muster 60 percent vote of the people, then, then maybe you should uh, not consider bringing it to the ballot. Catherine Turser from Common Cause, a government watchdog organization, told me the proposed change flies in the face of the Ohio Constitution since 1912 when citizens were given the ability to collect signatures and for voters to propose amendments to the Constitution. So one of the things that Secretary LaRose said when he first talked about it at that impact conference, he said, hey, this is for the business community, especially the Chamber of Commerce. And then he talks about how, okay, you know, it's special interests who are trying to, you know, make the Ohio Constitution longer. And you're like, well, wait a second. First of all, we're not California. We don't have a long list of citizen initiatives every year. Um, our voters, Ohio voters, are more conservative. And by that, I don't mean that they're, you know, Republicans. I mean that they're more cautious. We tend to be really thoughtful and not pass everything that is put before us, which I think is a really good thing. I just don't understand what the problem is. And I especially find it galling that the secretary is proposing a 60% vote for those efforts that are led by the voters of Ohio, his constituents. And in fact, he wants the state legislature just to have a simple majority vote. That I mean, it's just, you know, it's just unfair. Because mm -hmm. it's hard to reach a, a two-thirds or 60% threshold. You know, absolutely. Like, we should – it's incredibly difficult to do a citizen initiative, period. Mm -hmm. You're talking about, you know, at minimum, you know, half half a million signatures. And just, you know, imagine all over the state – Imagine worrying about fire, uh, like all of the different things. There are a lot of obstacles to citizens getting their measures on the ballot. And yet, don't voters want that opportunity? We've had it for more than 100 years. And there's no sense in making it more difficult. U.S. Senator-elect J.D. Vance is getting familiar with Washington, D.C. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell welcomed newly elected Republican senators shortly after the November 8th election. The group gathered in his office, and Senator McConnell made brief remarks encouraging them to, quote, accomplish something during their time. We asked Senator Sherrod Brown what he thinks of Vance's victory. I called uh, Senator-elect Vance the day after the election and congratulated him. It was a very good call. Um, I said to him that Senator Portman and I, even though we differ greatly on issues, I mean, Rob, Rob was for trade agreements like NAFTA. I fought them. Rob wants to, wanted to privatize parts of Medicare and Social Security. I think we should strengthen them. I mean, major differences on issues. But as I said to J.D., we all, we, we found ways to work together for Ohio. Uh, and that, you know, it could have been a, an infrastructure project at the 7170 interchange. It could have been something with state government, whatever. We found ways to work together. J.D. Vance and I talked about doing the same things. And even though we disagree on the big issues, 
Um, uh, there are, we need we put partisanship aside when it comes to working with state government, when it comes to working with people in Ohio. And I, I'm confident J.D. and I will do that together the way Rob and I did. Still to come on Face of the State, shipped out on your dime. Ted Investigates told you about the allegations of abuse and neglect at behavioral treatment facilities. This system is very broken. It is statewide. It knows no boundaries. It's, it goes way beyond Ohio. Our story now catching the attention of lawmakers and advocates. Also, we hear from a local medical student who's living proof of its importance. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. It's incredibly profitable to do so, and you have a lot of desperate parents or desperate caseworkers that need somewhere to put their troubled child. Then investigates found Ohio children are being shipped out of state to facilities with allegations of abuse and neglect. And where the kids go, millions in public dollars have followed. Ten Investigates has reported on behavioral treatment facilities for years, which now has the attention of two U.S. senators. Here's Chief Investigative Reporter Bennett Haberly following a trail of big profits and big concerns. Police and EMS arrive at a Michigan Behavioral Treatment Center. He's being restrained for some reason. I don't know why. Surveillance video sheds light on what happened, showing 16-year-old Cornelius Frederick throwing a sandwich at his peers. He is then shoved and restrained by staff for more than eight minutes. We heard him go, like something like that, so I'm like, all right, let's lift him up and sit him up. When they let up, he's unresponsive and dies two days later. So you're leaning on him, and there's people on each limb, basically, yeah. about five of you. In wake of Cornelius's death, the facility closed. Three staff were criminally charged, and boys from across the country were sent back home, including Damar Bowden, a 17-year-old from Columbus. His mother, Damara Harris, told me her son's behavior led to run-ins with juvenile court and placements at facilities in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Around the time that everything happened there, he had already contacted me and said, I want to come home. This is what's happening. These people aren't being, you know I mean, good to us. Home just two months. Damar was killed in Columbus in July of 2020 while trying to purchase a gun from someone he knew. It's like having them, watching them grow, and just one day it's just not there anymore. It's not a great feeling. It's empty. A lot, so. These stories are not unique, but are part of a pattern where children linked to foster care or juvenile court are shipped out to privately run facilities. Now, now that you guys finally killed one of us, you guys want to stop this and feel sorry for this, right? Where records show they've either caused harm or been hurt themselves. Ohio has used public money to send kids across the country at a cost of nearly $50 million over the past five years. Out of the 37 out-of-state facilities where Ohio children are sent, we found allegations of abuse or neglect in more than half of them. We also found Ohio and county agencies continued to send children to these out-of-state facilities even after Franklin County raised concerns about abuse and neglect. 
Take a look at this. A police report from December of 2020. Franklin County Children's Services faxed an Arkansas Sheriff's Office alleging a child at a facility there suffered chipped teeth, an injured wrist, and a busted lip during an altercation with other kids. FCCS also alleged that a staff member there witnessed the altercation but did not stop it. Ohio has sent children an $8.7 million to four different facilities in Arkansas. Inspection records there document case after case of assaults, sexual abuse, and both kids and staff hurting each other. And they're not alone. Nearly $200,000 went to this Indianapolis facility. $4.7 million went to Detroit Capstone. It shut down this summer after state inspectors raised concerns about incidents, including a fight involving an Ohio girl who admitted she struck and then was punched by a staff member. My present child's from Illinois. I had a case with a kid from Ohio, a case with a kid from Maine. Jared Medlock is an Arkansas attorney who has represented children at these facilities who allege they were abused. We've had uh, any number of these cases going for the last five years consistently. There's never been a drop-off where we didn't have at least one or two cases going here in the state of Arkansas. The nickname that some of us had for it was the misery mill. You would be there, you would be under constant, constant psychological assault, emotional assault, because there were guys there that just, it was all about pecking order. Stefan Specht is a former resident of Mill Creek, one of the Arkansas facilities where Ohio children have been sent. He grew up in foster care. His mother died by suicide when he was two. Father passed when he was 14. Now in his 20s, he says parents should think twice about sending kids to these places. The only thing that we can do is make parents very aware, sound off alarm bells to the average citizen that if they have a child that is experiencing mental illness, that they should think twice about sending them to one of these well-marketed facilities. Four companies operate nearly all the facilities where Ohio children are sent. Collectively, their earnings are in the billions. SEC filings show Acadia, with more than 200 facilities, reported third quarter revenue topping $666 million. More than half came from public money. Hi, this is Bennett Haberly with WBNS-TV in Columbus. We spent weeks attempting to reach the companies. Two got back to us, emailing statements that didn't directly answer our questions. UHS said isolated and rare negative events do occur, but that they take appropriate and corrective actions. Acadia's read in part, our facilities have worked to continuously improve our treatment programs and patient care, reduce the number of incidents, and give hope to hundreds of youths who previously had very little. Neither the state nor Franklin County Children's Services would talk to us. In emails, both agencies said they monitor these facilities and have reduced their use. Given what we found, we still had questions and told FCCS in advance we planned to stop by. But when we did, we're told no one was available. When are you able to come back? You, you guys tell me. We just were hoping to talk to somebody about you know, how well FCCS is monitoring these out-of-state facilities and why mm -hmm. we continue to spend millions sending kids to places that mm -hmm. have had issues with abuse and neglect. The county has repeatedly declined to talk with us, but in an emailed statement said their caseworkers do visit the facilities and ask about conditions. Two U.S. senators have been raising concerns, referenced previous reporting by 10 investigates and others, and they have asked the operators of these facilities for more information about the kids in their care. The same day Bennett's story aired, Franklin County Children's Services forwarded a letter of concern from advocates to 10 states urging them to take, quote, all steps you deem appropriate in light of the information. The advocates had sent 
FCCS that letter on September 29th. In the letter, they called on FCCS to end the out-of-state contracts. When it comes to foster care or kinship care, there aren't enough homes that will take teens. And so they often get placed in congregate care facilities when they don't even meet that level of need. This practice of out-of-state placements, we need to take another look at it and we need to come up with a different plan. Other states, like California and Oregon, have done away with out-of-state placements. Um, they brought their kids home. Ohio can and should bring its kids home, too. We need a plan first. Do you have an issue you want our 10 Investigates team to look into? We want to hear from you. Email us at 10investigates at 10tv.com. Still to come, we look at one type of treatment that's aimed at helping veterans and the push to expand access in Ohio. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Right now, there's a push to expand access to transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy in Ohio. It's used to help patients overcome depression and PTSD. Reporter Trent Croce shows us how it's helping veterans. Retired U.S. Marine Jeff Lindquist is no stranger when it comes to serving others. But when he got out of the Corps in 2006, he says his battles continued through mental health with standard treatments not working for him. I had tried pretty much everything the VA had to offer for a, a year or two or th- you know, possibly more. And I was just going nowhere fast. I just couldn't get out of my own way. I wasn't sleeping. But around a decade ago, he says his fellow peer and flight doctor introduced him to transcranial magnetic stimulation, which uses magnetic fields to stimulate brain neurons, changing how and when they release to help depression and PTSD. And he said, we're going to put a a magnet on your head and we're going to calibrate that. And I'm thinking, like a magnet, what do you mean? While Lindquist would eventually go several times a week, it was after his first half-hour treatment. He says he was finally able to do something hard for many veterans, sleep. I I literally lay down and I didn't wake up until the next morning, like 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. And my wife's like, you slept all the way through. How many pills did you take last night to sleep? And I was like, I didn't take any. Andy Herf, president of the Toledo-based government affairs firm Shoemaker Advisors, says seeing the effects on veterans is why he helped pass a budget amendment with former Navy SEAL and Ohio Senator Frank Hoagland and others in 2019. He says striving for accessibility for everyone is key now. Ultimately, our goal is to get this covered by insurance companies because then it really could become ubiquitous. This is something that could be used all over the country. Hearst says the treatments have created a community among veterans they want to recruit more towards, like Linquist, who has only gone a handful of times since his initial treatments a decade ago. They've turned it inward and they're helping each other. It's a really powerful thing to see. I just redirected my life and improve the quality of life so much that they asked me if I want to stick around and help veterans. And of course I did. 
Superintendent Talisa Dixon declared the week of Thanksgiving as Wellness Week in Columbus City Schools. For students and teachers, it meant last Monday and Tuesday were remote learning days. Dixon shared that the transition back to five days a week of in-person learning for the first time in 18 months has been challenging for everyone. One, we wanted to allow our staff, our students um, uh, to reset. This has been tough. We have continued to work I'm hard during the pandemic. Our teachers and our whole organization has been showing up every day um, to make sure that our students receive what they need. For Sal Gomez, a third-year medical student at Ohio State Wexner Medical Center, he's in remission from testicular cancer. He essentially made the diagnosis himself a year ago. Gomez shared with me that the journey of treatment, which included chemotherapy and recovery, has made him an even stronger advocate for self-care and awareness. It's, an, it's known in studies that you know, patients who have testicle, testicle cancer will put off their symptoms for quite a while um, because men, you know, in that way are just kind of, you know, we're naturally kind of stubborn with health, I think. Um, Secrets think, out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, with men... But also, I think just with people in healthcare, you know, especially, you know, people who are in medical school or, you know, whatever, want to be providers or are providers themselves, you know, residents and whatnot, mm-hmm. you get really busy and consumed with your work. You know, you're, you know, we're on rotations, on surgery. You, I was there from like 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then I had the study. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was a full day, you know, thing, you know, 12 plus hours of doing things, you know, and trying to go to the gym and, you know, other responsibilities and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But really, my message is that your health is what's most important. You can't help other people if you're not healthy yourself. And Gomez took a break from medical school last year, but is back. He started his internal medicine rotation this past week. He also got engaged and is sharing his story with other med students so that they can advocate for their own health. We certainly thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State today, and we wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with information about what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Coming up on Face the State, lawmakers are looking at grocery stores. Not the price tags necessarily, but the cost of a proposed merger. Rare bipartisan agreement in the nation's capital on protecting same-sex and interracial marriage. But some say the legislation still falls short. And state lawmakers are taking a look at lowering the cost of your prescriptions and raising the minimum wage. We'll see what that's all about when you join us at 1130 for Face the State. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Mr. Kevin Finn. He's the founding president and chief executive officer of Strategies to End Homelessness, which is in Cincinnati. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Strategies to End Homelessness is. Uh, We are the organization in Cincinnati, Hamilton County, Ohio, that leads uh, the coordination of services to end homelessness in the area. By coordinating, does that mean, I mean, do you run or own shelters or are you just uh, more in contact with different agencies that provide different services or what? We coordinate. 
coordinate the work of about 30 different nonprofit organizations that are all working in Hamilton County. But those are the organizations that actually run the homeless shelters and the street outreach programs and the housing programs uh, that work at getting people out of homelessness. We also administer what is normally government funding for homeless services, uh, and we pass those dollars through to our partner agencies as well. How big of an issue is homelessness in Cincinnati? How many are there, and and, uh, what's the trend of late? We typically have a little over 6,000 people who are literally homeless, meaning they are sleeping unsheltered on the streets or they're a resident of an emergency shelter or fleeing domestic violence. So about six, over 6,000 people a year on any given night, about 700, 750 people. Wow. And I saw that just, I think it was last week that the 24-hour shelter or the overnight shelter opened in Cincinnati, which happens every year, and that's an augmentation to the permanent shelters, right? Yeah, we have about 5% of our homeless population that generally uh, does not come into a shelter, but they are most likely to come inside during the winter. So we work with our partner agencies to add winter shelter capacity during the winter to make sure that when somebody decides they're uh, willing to come into shelter that there is a bed available to them. Now, before I get too far into this, I did want to mention and talk about uh, a big grant that you've just received, correct? Uh, yeah, we're, we're very excited that the Day One Families First Foundation uh, Fund decided to give us $5 million to use over the coming years to specifically target at family homelessness. So uh, that is going to be a huge new resource for us to use in Hamilton County. The funding that we normally administer is government funding, which has lots of restrictions and lots of sort of strings attached to it, limitations on what those dollars can be used for. Um, So while we appreciate receiving government funding, it's nice to receive uh, foundation funding that allows you to do those um, things that you can't normally do with government funding and sort of fill in the gaps in the system. And that's what this grant will allow us to do. Now, you started Strategies to End Homelessness in Cincinnati in 2008, and you were involved with uh, homeless activities before that. So you're you know, just a, a longtime veteran of this sort of care. What uh, would you tell us about homelessness that maybe people don't understand about it? Is that driven in large part by domestic violence or what? Domestic violence is a part of it, but I think it also is the cost of housing. The number one cause of affordable housing, the number one cause of homelessness is the lack of affordable housing. And obviously for a family of three, four or five people, you need to be able to afford a larger unit for people to comfortably live there. So, you know, the housing costs are higher for a family than they are for a single individual who might be able to live in a small efficiency apartment. So a 
lot of families are at higher risk of becoming homeless than single individuals are. Talking with Kevin Finn, founding president and chief executive officer of Strategies to End Homelessness, which is in Cincinnati. While the housing situation right now is at a crisis point, even for people who maybe have have had a job for 20 years and never been interrupted from that job. I mean, if you were looking for a house three years ago and didn't buy one, and you were just barely maybe able to do it then, there's no way you could do it now. Right, and there are lots of people who, through no fault of their own, are now finding themselves at risk of homelessness. People that have continued to work and continued to support themselves, but all of a sudden, you know, they may be making the same amount of money, but all of a sudden their rents are being increased every year and they're just being priced out of housing that is available. So that is the number one thing that's going on to increase homelessness. We had actually seen a slight decrease in homelessness during the pandemic, largely due to the amount of emergency rental assistance funding that had been available to help people. But those funds are now going away. So, um, you know, another thing that's nice about this day one families fund gift is that the timing is that these funds will be available right when so many of those other funding sources from COVID are going away. Yeah, that can go a long way, it seems, to fill some of the gaps. What about the added difficulties with the cost of housing going up so much in programs that help the homeless get into affordable housing? How how much of a crimp is there in that right now? look at Cincinnati, Toledo, Columbus, Cleveland, Dayton, do they approach homelessness in far different ways from each other, or are there formulas that many of them follow, or what? You know, I, I really can't speak to some of the other cities in Ohio. In the city of Cincinnati, the, the city has been a great partner in, in helping us address homelessness. So, for example, one of the, the big funding sources each year what we are able to do for homeless families that are already doubled up, uh, a lot of that funding comes from the city of Cincinnati, which is great, but those dollars are not on the same scale as some of the money that comes, let's say, from the federal government. And the federal government funds, we literally have to wait for a family to be on the street or in a shelter before we can help them. So the city of Cincinnati has been extremely helpful to us, but they are not able to help on the same scale as the federal government, which is more restrictive. And I would guess also along with that, nonprofits in the private sector, uh, you know, they're so different from community to community, much stronger in some communities than others. And I guess that would make a big difference as well. Um, There are some significant differences from community to community. 
you know, it's interesting that the Department of Housing and Urban Development has designated 14 communities around the country that um, are doing a good job of addressing homelessness, and two of them all happen to be in the state of Ohio. So my organization, Strategies to End Homelessness in Cincinnati, Hamilton County, uh, and the Community Shelter Board in Columbus are two of those 14. Uh, but when you go to other communities, you might have a very different experience of how coordinated the system of care for people experiencing homelessness is. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Kevin Finn. He's the CEO of Strategies to End Homelessness, which is in Cincinnati. Where do you see the homeless situation in a year or two from now or five years from now? Where is it going? Well, as I mentioned, you know, I think uh, prevention works and prevention also costs less. So as I mentioned, over the last couple of years when there were emergency rental assistance dollars available from the stimulus packages, we actually saw a slight decline in homelessness in Hamilton County. But with those dollars going away, um, we are anticipating that there's going to be an increase in the number of people on the street and in shelters uh, in the coming years. Um, and while this, this recent gift from Day One Families First will be very helpful with that, um, even the $5 million that we are receiving as a part of this gift pales into comparison to the amount of emergency rental assistance money that had been available to help people stay in their housing over the last couple of years. So with those resources going away, unfortunately, we're expecting an increase. Has all the money that Congress uh, allocated to cities and states for the pandemic, going forward, is that going to change the way Congress views particular issues when it comes to funding for communities? I certainly hope so. I am a big fan of intervening as early as possible to help families that are at risk. Um, and I think the data clearly shows that intervening early is not only the most cost-effective way to help families, it also saves the children in those families the trauma of experiencing homelessness. Um, so I certainly hope that the way the government dollars are allocated and able to be used will change in the future. How about funding for help with uh, mental health issues, uh, the opioid epidemic? I'm sure that those are both very much connected to homelessness, not entirely, obviously, but in some ways. Yeah, you know, they are. But, you know, I I always point out to people that, um, you know, generally uh, about a quarter of our homeless adults have a drug or alcohol problem, which means three quarters do not. Um, And about... 30, 33% of our homeless adults have a mental health issue, which means two thirds of them do not. So the tendency is to look for a silver bullet that will solve homelessness. And there just aren't any, because even if you fixed issues around drug and alcohol abuse and mental health issues, and everybody was able to get all the services they could possibly need, we would still have three-quarters to two-thirds of the number who are experiencing homelessness, but every one of those people is affected by the lack of affordable housing. Right. Very complex issue. Uh, Kevin Finn, again, he's the founding president and chief executive officer of Strategies to End Homelessness, based in Cincinnati. Thanks so much for your time, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
It's flu season, and we want to make sure you have the info you need to stay safe. So we're answering questions about the flu and flu vaccine. Like this one from Paula, who wants to know if this year's flu shot contains mercury. So Paula, let's verify. We reached out to the FDA, CDC, and Dr. Claire Rock, Associate Professor of Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. Rock told Verify that there is no mercury in most flu vaccines in the U.S. And so there is a mercury derivative that's in tiny, tiny, minute portions in multi-dose vials to act as a preservative and basically prevent against any bacteria or germs growing inside the vial. Thimerosal, which contains ethyl mercury, is the mercury derivative that Dr. Rock is referring to. It's not the same type of mercury that causes mercury poisoning. The CDC says ethyl mercury is safe to use in vaccines and confirmed that it's only used in multi-dose vials. But according to the FDA and CDC, most of the flu vaccines in the U.S. are single dose. A spokesperson for the CDC told Verify that 93% of flu shots this season will be thimerosal free or thimerosal reduced. So we can verify most flu shots do not contain thimerosal, an ethylmercury-based preservative. Verify read through many studies conducted by the FDA and CDC and found no evidence of harm caused by low doses of thimerosal in vaccines. With your Verify, I'm Ariande Till. My muscles ached. I was tired all the time. My son had a full-blown asthma attack. It came out of nowhere. The unsettling thing about some symptoms is... I had a fever and these terrible headaches. You don't always know what's causing them. It was Lyme disease from a tick bite. I had Zika virus from a mosquito. He had a reaction to cockroach allergens. Threats to your health can come from unexpected places. Get the facts. Visit pestworld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Rick Burt. He's the president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. How you doing? Good to talk to you. We talk to you a couple of times a year, and uh, I always like to start out by talking about your Buckeye connections. That's right. Yeah, I'm a proud Buckeye. Grew up in uh, Springfield, Ohio, suburb of Dayton. I went to Wittenberg in Ohio State. Uh, And so uh, always great to be uh, in the Buckeye State, even if it's virtual. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. Tell us about SAD. This is a national organization, maybe even beyond that, right? Yeah, uh, we have been around for over four decades working to empower teens, engage parents, mobilize communities, and change lives around the leading risks and pressures that young people face. Many of our listeners might remember us as Students Against Drunk Driving, same organization, but broadened our focus at the, at the request of our students, really, because the issues that they were feeling in their schools and communities, while still important to talk about impaired driving, uh, are far beyond that. So now we have a full, full portfolio that talks about the full range of issues that we face and being safe behind the wheel, from distracted driving to seatbelt safety and beyond, uh, substance use like the opioid crisis and the fentanyl epidemic, and then of course men, mental health uh, and leadership development. So are these groups of kids that form in high schools with adult mentors, or how does that all that work? Yeah, we've got about 8,000 chapters, and a chapter is exactly what you just described. It's usually a school-based program. doesn't have to be. We also have some chapters in houses of worship, in uh, community centers, in homeschool networks. But a group of young people who are committed to talking about these issues, to having conversations in their communities, to helping us spread awareness and, and educational campaigns, 
and then uh, use our, our evidence-based resources to hopefully change behavior and keep young people safe. We also provide resources for parents, law enforcement, community members, uh, and the broader network, really anyone who cares about the health and safety of young people, we're trying to work with them to, to do just that. So you continued as best you could during the pandemic through uh, online virtual get-togethers and such. You must have a pretty good uh, finger on the pulse of how kids are doing these days coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, we were very fortunate in that, first of all, young people are incredibly resilient, and they're you know luckily pretty tech-savvy. So we were uh, very fortunate to be able to continue most of our work uh, in a virtual setup, virtual chapter meetings. Uh, virtual programming, lots of social media engagement, uh, online uh, online learning-based programs, Google Classrooms and, and such. But we really have been able to see the, the impact of COVID-19 and the fact that uh, it, it certainly has had a delay in the social and emotional learning of young people. If you think about it, over the past couple of years, young people have missed out on some opportunities. We've, we've talked a lot about how they've missed out on prom and maybe graduation and other some of those keystone events. But what we've missed talking about are those opportunities that have that they've been uh, excluded from, like you know, not making the basketball team, handling adversity. How do you handle conflict? And so I think young people right now are desperately trying to play catch up on the social and emotional learning aspect of of development, and that's certainly having an impact not only on their uh, their current physical state, but also on things like increasing violence in our schools. Uh, if you talk to any principal across the Buckeye State, they're going to tell you that they've seen an increase in fights and, and altercations. Uh, if you you know go down the freeway, you might feel like drivers are a little bit more intense. I think we're at a point where we're all feeling a little bit more of that anxiety and depression, and in so much so that the CDC released a new report just a couple weeks ago that said that one in four young people across our country right now are struggling with a diagnosable mental health condition. So we've got resources for teens and parents on how to talk about mental health, or how to engage in these subjects, and how to be part of that solution to talking about these issues in a way that removes the stigma and also gets young people the help that they need to stay safe. You know, when you think about that two years of complete upheaval that the pandemic caused everybody, um, if you're 40 or 50 years old, two years, certainly it's a big deal, but it's not as big a deal as two years of your life when you're 10 or 12 or 16. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely right. I mean, those are critical years. Uh, the, there's a reason why, you know, we see drastic growth in our young people, both academically and socially and emotionally during the periods of adolescence, especially during those puberty years when you're, you know, uh, understanding social nuances, when you're understanding emotional intelligence. A lot of that comes from interactions because humans are, by our very nature, social beings. And even though we can do a lot via Zoom and a lot via digital context, we don't have the same level of interactions. Anyone who's you know, gone to an in-person conference or, or, or been in a place of worship and just knows that there's a difference from being in the room. And so it's, it really has been interesting to see how that, that lack of contact, that reclusion has had a long-lasting impact. Uh, even beyond the pandemic, I think we're going to start to see these uh, these side effects of COVID continue to bumble up, probably for for many years to come, as young people grapple with uh, that 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 loss, if you will. And that's on top of the fact that, unfortunately, you know, many families did lose someone during the pandemic, or had uh, or had you know some sort of other medical complications from the actual pandemic itself. Now that we combine that with, you know, an economy that's in a little bit of free fall, combine that with uh, global conflict abroad and the violence we're seeing in schools, elementary schools, malls, 
shopping centers. Uh, it really is scary. Uh, it's how one young person described it to me a couple of days ago. Scary being a teen today because you never know when you're safe. And when you think about the fact that we have, you know, a 16-year-old saying, I don't know when I'm safe, that really just shows you how unnerving, uh, you know, we are in, as a culture and how much work we have to do to grapple with that anxiety that our young people are facing. Talking with Rick Bird, he's the president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. And even, you know, some of these, uh, the most horrific shootings have involved, you know, first graders. And, and these are kids who don't even understand what a threat like that is, but they they end up with this uneasy feeling that there's something scary about school. That's right. And, and uh, certainly those families that have been directly impacted, our heart goes out to them. And, and, you know, there's going to be post-traumatic stress from, from that, having that lived experience for, for decades to come. But also, I think we, we underestimate how much our kiddos do process. When you, when you talk with a, you know, a second or a third grader, uh, they understand more than I think we give them credit, especially because we're living in a constantly connected society. They most likely have a tablet or, you know, have, have access to a computer. And so they see the news headlines. They can put two and two together. And so more and more young people are feeling that anxiety about going to school because they just don't feel safe. And school, of all places, should be a place where everyone feels safe, valued, protected. But, uh, you know, it begins to beg the question, well, if this can happen at University of Virginia campus, if this can happen uh, at a school in Texas, you know, it could happen to uh, my school if I'm a second or third grader, or even if I'm a high school student. Uh, it could happen to, to my school. So what we want to do, we have a special toolkit uh, called Are We Safe? that's on our website, www.sadd.org. And that's designed especially for teens and parents to process the violence we're seeing in our schools. Not just uh, the, the, the shootings, which are obviously horrific, but just the increase in violence we've seen on our campuses and how to handle uh, the fear and the, uh, the, the questioning of the unknown. But then also, how do you make a plan? If you're a family, what, what would you do if there were such a crisis? We have resources on that. And then, of course, we have a separate toolkit that's designed just to focus on mental health in general. How do you talk with your kid about anxiety, depression? How do you talk with your kid about the, the fact that we're talking about nuclear war uh, in our news feeds and in, in the headlines right now? How do you handle the, the pressure of, of being a young person in a very complicated age? We've got resources in our parent and adult allies corner on all of those topics that are absolutely free to access. We're hoping that parents and, and caring adults, those who care for, for young people, can use those as an opportunity to get the conversation started, to engage, to find the best way to engage, and can hopefully, again, use those as a resource to, to get young people the, the support that they need during these very, very challenging times. Does SAD take a stand on issues like arming teachers or staff in schools, or, or is it at least discussed among members or anything like that? I'm sure it's certainly been discussed by members. We don't have a formal position on that. We, we try to uh, in, institute programming that looks at school culture and how can we make sure that everyone feels involved in school culture. One of the, the, the premier warning signs of School violence is when people start to feel disengaged when they're on the fray, they don't feel connected. So we have programming that we've worked with in partnership with uh, the Sandy Hook Promise to create that uh, allows us to, to, to reach out to students who might feel disenfranchised or who might feel uh, unwelcomed or not part of a, of a social group. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we raise awareness on campuses of how do you report a threat? If you feel like someone might be in danger of hurting themselves or hurting someone else, how can you use resources like the new National 988 phone number, which is designed to, to be a mental health crisis line 
that our listeners should absolutely know. Just like you would dial 911 for a medical emergency, you can dial, now dial 988 from any phone in the United States. That will connect you with a mental health crisis line that can help you process a tragedy, help you uh, work through some, some, some anxiety or some depression you might be feeling, and connect you with local resources that can help you, uh, again, uh, understand what you're going through and get you the support that you need. Good stuff. Uh, Rick Burt, he's the president and CEO of SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions. Anything else you'd like to add? Just again, encourage our listeners to go to www.sadd.org to check out our resources and use them. Also follow us on social media. On your favorite social media platform, you will find us as SAD Nation. Great. Uh, Rick, thanks so much for your time and good luck. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.